When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Welcome back to another episode of Big Mood, Little Mood with Danny Lavery. With me in the studio this week is Kat Chow, a reporter and author of the memoir Seeing Ghosts, forthcoming from Grand Central Publishing on August 24th, 2021. Kat, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I'm really excited too, not least because I think I just realized as I was reading your bio, I feel as though my last five or six guests have all just either published a memoir or are about to come out with one. And I sort of like the idea that this is just like the summer of I talk with memoirists. Yeah, it's hot memoir summer. I mean, that doesn't really have a good ring to it, but maybe it, maybe that's what it is now. I feel like I was so close to coming up with something about like memoir and fall. And I, I, if I'm honest, I wasn't close at all. Um, I was nowhere near uh, making something work that was autumnal. This is just one of those phases where lots of people get to write books about themselves. And I think that's great. Yeah, I think that, you know, after a pandemic, there's just a lot of interest. Well, not after, we're still in this pandemic. Um, Let me not misspeak on that, but there's just a lot of room for deep introspection and maybe more time to write. I don't know. Depends on who you are. I just also (laughs) think it's like a nice, it's a nice little update. It's like my life so far. Oh, thank you. It's all written down. Now I can just (laughs) take a look at it and see what you, what you have to think about it. I am a big fan of it. I support it. And uh, I'm really, really looking forward to talking to you a little bit more about your book later on in our conversation. Um, Although before that, I'm very excited to to try to get to advise some people who... I I think the theme of today's questions are, are something to do with what sort of attachment am I in the middle of? Like, am I in a relationship that exists and needs to end? Am I in a relationship that has not yet actually begun and needs to start properly? Am I in a relationship simultaneous with another possibly mutually exclusive relationship? Where am I? Um, yes. And I think, I think, frankly, that's a question that somebody who has recently written a memoir might be pretty well situated to try to uh, speak on to because you do spend a fair amount of a memoir thinking about Quite literally, where am I in relation to the rest of my life? Yes, exactly. I mean, perhaps, you know, also being a Scorpio, I have a lot of thoughts on boundaries too and and how best to keep them for uh, ourselves. So I am looking forward to this. Do do Scorpios have a particular relationship to boundaries that other people don't? Or You know, I can't speak for all Scorpios, but I guess I'm about to, which is, I think Scorpios in general for um, a lot of astrologers, astrological signs tend to have very strong senses of where their boundaries lie and, you know, who is good or or less good for their lives. 
I'm curious. I, I never think I can quite get a sense of when somebody is talking about astrology. Like, to what degree do you think of this as like a useful framework for considering your your various uh, character traits? To what extent do you think, I, I, I believe that the motion of the stars has influenced the way that I think about other people. How, how firmly implanted in your cheek is your tongue when you talk about <laughs> astrology is my question. Well, you know, honestly, for me, this came up because a lot of my friends and I just would start sending each other these memes and gently dragging each other, you know, as friends do, making fun of each other, using these uh sort of Instagram memes to to poke fun at each other's strengths and sometimes faults. And um, so I think it's really a tongue-in-cheek way for me personally of being able to identify certain traits and also give vocabulary to them, um, which is which is helpful. Sometimes we need that. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's in the category <laughs> of sending uh, image macros to your friends that you think reminds you of them in a way that is both playful and and yet slightly pointed, uh, that is definitely something I can get behind. I think my question comes from the fact that whenever I have seen any sort of mimetic image uh, on social media about a, an astrological sign, I have always related to it, no matter what it was yeah. about. I've never <laughs> seen one and thought that 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 falls outside of the realm of my experiences. So I mostly just think the signs seem to be like things I often do but we're pretending it's one of 12 different kinds of people. Yes. And maybe yeah. my problem is just that I think everything is about me. <laughs> I mean, I think that's why I enjoy these signs so much because, you know, you can kind of just pick and choose sometimes. I, I This is helpful. I think this is where my problem often lies. As a, as a young person, I would often read those choose your own adventure books with like each of my fingers sort of stuck on a different page so I could refer back to them immediately if I needed to because I always wanted to optimize like what's the best ending I don't ever want to get to a bad one. And I feel that way about various like types of um, personality categorization, whether that be astrology or any of the other sort of weird strengths finder things is I'm always just like, no, that's me too. They're all me. You can't have any of this. Everything is myself. Oh my gosh. I love that you brought that up. That's so funny to me. When I was little, I would just read those sometimes in just chronological order where, you know, I just, it'd say like, skip to page 72 to see what happens. Or if you choose to go over the bridge and I would just continue reading on to page like, you know, 35 to 71, just to see what happened and not in my head, even partake in this game that the writer was so lovingly setting up for me. So maybe I just don't follow directions well. I appreciate the sentiment, but like I'll decide whether <laughs> or not I'm going to read on to page 72. Also, the Strengths Finder is a horrible scam that is designed to separate people from their money. So I hope very much that regardless of anyone's tongue-in-cheek relationship to various types of personality categorization, uh, that when it comes to your wallet, uh, you're able to stop the joke and say, no, this is my money and I need it now. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money 
so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramps business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramps software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Why don't I read our first letter instead of quoting old infomercials? <laughs> sure. The subject is a Greek chorus of exes. Last year, I rekindled a relationship with an ex from almost a decade ago. Our previous relationship ended badly. He cheated on me and gaslit me. And when the truth slowly came out, I became controlling and vindictive. We were both in our 20s then. And in the intervening years, we've had other relationships and both done a lot of work in therapy. Last year, we ended our previous relationships without cheating and quickly began seeing each other. He told me at the outset that he wanted to remain friends with his ex. And I encouraged that because it seemed healthy. However, it became apparent that he wasn't giving himself time to mourn that relationship, and what developed between them was an emotionally loaded friendship that I felt crossed our boundaries, especially because, even though I asked, he never introduced me to her. After months of arguing, he ended our relationship in February. In the following months, though, he kept asking me to talk, and I eventually came around to the idea of a conversation. We're now considering getting back together, but he's still hesitant to cease contact with his ex temporarily while we build trust, as well as with the people he's been casually dating in the interim. I don't want to be controlling, but I'm finding it hard to trust him. I know that we both do things that feed distrust. He seeks validation from other women when he feels lonely or insecure, and I respond with increasing anger when these things happen. We're talking about seeing a therapist together and we both love each other and want to overcome the past. Is there a way to go forward with this and help myself feel okay about his contact with these exes of varying degrees so that I don't sabotage our attempts to heal? Or am I protecting myself by not agreeing to see him as long as he's in contact with them? Let me just start by double checking. Do you feel clear on the timeline here? I had to read through this a few times to get a sense of just how many times they have dated and broken up. I think yeah. I've got it. Oh, you think you've got it? Because I'm I was a bit confused. So I please enlighten me on this. I I've read this multiple times and not sure. So the letter writer and her ex dated in their 20s 10 years ago. And then last year they reconnected while they were both in relationships with other people. They the the caveat the letter writer includes is without cheating. So they, I guess, sort of reconnected and were like, wow, there's still something here. Let's go break up with our partners and figure it out. Then they broke up with their partners and got together. And yet the letter writer's boyfriend stayed in very close contact with the woman he had just dumped to be with her. And that led to their breakup uh, in February. Mm -hmm. So it's been a few months since then. He keeps asking to talk, even though he's the one who ended it the most recently. And the letter writer is now thinking, is it worth trying to get back together if he's still in touch with her? And that was the reason we broke up a few months ago. Or, you know, should I just give it a go and, and, and try regardless? Right. Yes. I think that makes sense for a time frame. 
Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I it, it really <laughs> did take me a minute to figure out all the moving parts. So they have broken up now twice uh, and are thinking about getting back together. What do you think? Should they give it a go? Ah, this is a complicated one, but also to me, it seems quite straightforward in that. Um, so obviously, there's a lot of history here that is both painful and a long time standing. And in my view, it seems that the letter writer and their ex have been through just so much. And I'm really inclined to say maybe it's time to move on because a lot of the issues from, you know, the the vague details that we have sort of seem like they're still there and might even be exacerbated each time this couple gets together. And for me, the red flag is just this level of perhaps self-doubt that the letter writer is surfacing with these questions of, is there a way to go forward with this and help myself feel okay with his contacts with these exes of varying degrees so that I don't sabotage our attempts to heal? Or am I protecting myself by not agreeing to see him as long as he is in contact with them? So it just sounds as if, you know, these questions are really grounded in an in inability to trust this, uh, this boyfriend or this ex. And I think that once trust is broken, especially if this is something that the letter writer has tried to work on, um, that's really, really hard to overcome. Yeah. You know, I, I'm very aware that part of my reaction to this is just, boy, it sounds really complicated. And like, when in doubt, why not pursue something that's not complicated? Which I think is easy to do when it's not your relationship. Right. Um, so I, I, I guess I just want to acknowledge like the, the obvious answer to me seems like, well, this seems to have been the problem 10 years ago. It seems to have been the problem last year. It seems like it will still be a problem now. I think you have pretty strong reason to believe that these same issues will be seriously damaging uh, if you two get back together and you'll probably break up over the same thing sometime in the next six months. But I'm also aware that we don't decide to get into relationships solely because we have made like a cost-benefit analysis worksheet. Um, and so I also want to take seriously the fact that this letter writer really cares about this guy or, or would really like to see if if there's a potential relationship here. So, you know, certainly I don't think that the letter writer should make herself feel okay. Um, I, I can appreciate that she wants to maybe not get like really angry and controlling. Right. But I, I don't think you have to like it either. So I, I guess, you know, letter writer, my question for you would be something like, historically, when you have been with him and you have felt yourself get controlling and vindictive, is there a part of you that says in those moments, this is not good for me. I don't like the way I feel this way. I would rather be with somebody else, even if I didn't necessarily feel quite as strongly about them. I want to walk away. And is there a part of you that feels like you really want to dig in your heels? Like, no, I really believe that being controlling and vindictive is going to get me something I need. Um, and this is, this is something I must do. This is something I won't give up. Just, just sort of ask, like, what do I get out of being controlling and vindictive? And that's not to say, gosh, you must always get back together with him because you love the chaos and you love an excuse to be cruel. I just think now is a good opportunity to ask, like, previously, when I've been, like, really angry, felt really controlling, felt really vindictive, why didn't I want to just end it? Like, what was right, happening right. that felt really important? But besides just, I love him. Because I, I clearly, that's part of the, the issue here. But. I think that's a really great question, too. And also off of that, I, you know, this isn't indicated in the letter, but I, I am curious if 
the controlling and vindictive nature is something that the letter writer brings to other relationships and is sort of this response to any form of mistrust. And maybe then that's a broader thing that the letter writer should explore and um, try to figure out in whether or not you know, she remains in this relationship or actually decides to pursue it or decides to have other ones. It seems like that's also just a question that I I have in my head too. Yeah. And and again, I'm not saying that to say like, you must love being controlling. It must be your favorite thing in the world. Um, But simply to ask like, are there things that I think I can get when I'm in a position of feeling betrayed, angry, and self-righteous that I worry I won't get in another relationship with someone who hasn't already treated me badly or hurt my feelings or, you know, betrayed my trust. And to sort of do a little investigating there of like, if I were not to go back into this relationship, if I were to go look for somebody who was reliable, who did share my values around, you know, monogamy and and fidelity, what would feel vulnerable there? Would I feel like, oh, now I'm just waiting for him to hurt me too. And at least in this relationship, I know my position. I've confirmed my fears about the world, which is that I can't trust my partner to to treat me with respect and honesty. And now I get to, you know, in, indulge in something that might be painful, but at least feels familiar and sort of um, reassures me that the things I was afraid were true are true. So then I don't have to deal with the fear of, you know, trying under circumstances where I don't already know the outcome. You might hear that letter writer and think like, that sounds you know, nice, but doesn't really apply. That's not what I've been feeling. So feel very free to dismiss that. But I think that when you are in a position where you feel like I don't want to be controlling, but I also really kind of want to go up for round three where the circumstances haven't changed at all. It seems to me very likely that you will feel controlling and and hurt. I I kind of don't know how you wouldn't given these circumstances. So I, I think that that, that moment is ripe for a little curiosity. So then I I guess my last thing would just be, if you do decide to try again, how are you going to rebuild trust? Specifically, how is he going to rebuild trust with you? And you should have like an actual answer to that question. If it's not, he's going to stop talking to that ex, then what concrete things can he do to rebuild your trust? Because if you don't know, and it's just a general sense of like, well, if enough time elapses and I feel good then the trust will have been rebuilt. Like you, you, you need to have actual things you can ask of him and things that you can measure so that you'll know has the trust be, right. been rebuilt. And if, if you two put your heads together and you can't think of anything, that might be another point in, in favor of not getting back together. And if you can agree on certain things, um, things that you think that you would be able to accept and things that he thinks he'd be willing to, to offer, maybe you'll, you'll want to give that a shot. But you do need to actually figure out what those things are. Exactly. And then I also think that just, you know, only enter into this if you feel that you can be set up for being in a good emotional place and that you're not entering into something that will hurt you even more. Um, Again, Mm -hmm. you know, what I mentioned in the beginning about self-doubt, where the letter writer, you say that earlier, a decade or so ago, he gaslit you and the truth slowly came out. I think that it's natural to want to protect yourself and to proceed with caution. And so if you do engage in this relationship again, that's totally fair to go to therapy and say, which, like, what are the boundaries and what are the ways that we're going to rebuild trust together um, on both ends of me not being controlling and vindictive and, and you perhaps, you know, being able to have a relationship with me in ways that we can form a trust again. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, while also really wanting to leave room for the possibility that he has changed since he was in his 20s and he is no longer going to, you know, try to convince you that you are losing your mind or unnecessarily paranoid if you find, you know, obvious, straightforward evidence that he's cheating on you, for example. But I, I was a little, you know, I, I had a little alarm go off when you said, you know, we both do things that feed distrust. He seeks validation from other women when he feels lonely or insecure. I, you know, I don't know, letter writer, if that is something that you came up with on your own. It sounds to me like something that you have heard from him, either directly or or through implication. And I am just, I'm very suspicious of this claim you know, I only flirt with other girls or I only lie to you about my exes that I'm talking to or I only cheat on you when I feel lonely and insecure. I, I mean, maybe maybe that's true. I don't know the inside of his head. But for someone to say like, gee, it's only when like I'm sad, then that kind of sets it up so that if he ever cheats on you, he's going to say, gosh, it's just because I'm so insecure, which would put you in a position of saying, wow, I'm really sorry to hear that, you poor thing. And so I just... I, I I don't know that that ate at me a little bit. It just feels like maybe that's why. Maybe he also just really likes it. Like I don't really, or, or rather, I don't really care if he feels insecure or not. But I, I I am reluctant to sort of like pathologize. Like oh gee, I I like to flirt with pretty women. Like yeah, lots of people like to do that. Not because they're feeling sad, just because it's nice. Like right. And there's a way to you know not put judgment on it or without it you know being so pat. And I think I think that's okay. I I I also had that little red flag pop off too. Yeah, that like, poor me. I wouldn't do it except I'm so sad. And then again, let's. I can see how easily that could turn into if only you were better at making me happy, I wouldn't need to turn to these other women. And since you say letter writer, and it sounds like fairly compellingly, he has not only lied to you in the past, but tried to convince you that you were losing touch with reality for um, suspecting him of cheating on you, that, that line gives me real pause. So I would say, take your time on this one. Lean towards no. Talk to your friends, especially your friends who maybe knew you 10 years ago. And um, <laughs> yeah, if you don't have really, really strong and compelling and measurable reasons to know that he will be able to rebuild your trust by doing X, Y, and Z actions in the future, let that one go, I think. That's solid advice. Let us know. I would love to hear how that conversation goes. I would love to hear if he has any thoughts about how he might rebuild your trust. Maybe I'm way off base and he actually does have a, a strong plan. Would you read our second letter? I would be honored to. So it's, are emotional affairs real and am I having one? I'm a 41-year-old bi woman who's always formed really close, intimate relationships, mainly with men. About seven years ago, I had a sexual encounter with a friend, James. Although we didn't have intercourse, we definitely crossed some, and we eventually agreed to just be friends. Fast forward to now, and James is maybe the closest friend I've ever had. I love him to death and think of him frequently, in platonic and not-so-platonic ways. He means the world to me. My husband knows how I feel about James, as well as our history, and he isn't threatened, but I wonder, should he be? Is this what they call an emotional affair? Given my history and demonstrated capacity for having multiple close relationships, maybe this is a sign that I'm polyamorous. Or is this fine and I'm overthinking? So actually here I had some timeline questions too, but I wasn't sure if they were as, um, you know, 
relevant. So seven years ago, when Letter Writer had this encounter with friend James, I'm wondering, you know, was the husband also in the picture? And uh, also another question I had was, um, given my history and demonstrated capacity for having multiple close relationships, is the encounter seven years ago sort of what the Letter Writer is referring to that? Is Letter Writer referring to something else? Did you have any understanding of this, Danny? Yeah, so it wasn't super, super clear to me if the letter writer had been married at the time, but it it did feel clear that the letter writer's husband did know about the timeline of when they did get together. So that part felt fairly straightforward in the sense that it didn't seem to me especially crucial to my understanding of the situation to figure out those details. You know, my my thought here is, I think one of the things that's sort of interesting is like someone will describe a situation that they're in like this and then say like, am I the thing that I believe describes this situation. So, you know, like to, to ask, am I polyamorous? As if that were simply like this external thing that like God or the universe stamped you with at birth. And it was either your job to discover uh, or, or simply like learn whether you were or not. And if, you know, if I were to say, no, you're actually not, I checked, you would have to simply like set aside your feelings for change. Like whatever right, say, you are yes, or you're aren't. right, yeah. 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 Whatever you are or aren't and, and whatever you may decide to do or not do in the future, you sound fairly aware of the fact that you love your husband and that you love your friend James and that the way that you love James is in many ways closer to a romantic commitment than to a, I don't know, I don't want to say like standard close friendship as if there's simply like one measurable right. uh, stamp for that. but but closer to a a romantic relationship than otherwise. So you may decide you need to avow that in different ways. You may decide you don't. But the question of like, if I'm polyamorous, all of a sudden this becomes a totally different setup, I think is a distraction. I, I, I don't think you need to ask that question so much as you should ask the question like, what would I like to do with all of this? Yes, exactly. I think that's Exactly what I was thinking when I was reading this letter and, and mulling it over. It's just the the question of, um, you know, is this an emotional affair or am I polyamorous? Those feel as though, you know, they're not really focusing in on what the letter writer really could be asking, which is, what does the letter writer want? Does the letter writer want to act on these feelings? Does the letter writer want a relationship with James that's more than, you know, they're current definition of friendship or whatever it is right now? And, you know, does the letter writer want this in addition to their current relationship with their husband, which is what it sounds like? And if yes, then sure, why not try and explore what these relationships could look like, you know, with close friends or with a therapist or someone to just talk with about this um, with without judgment and with a lot of emotional honesty. And, and letter writer seems, you know, you seem really capable of doing this. You seem pretty thoughtful and like you want to do this in a way that, you know, is very considered. Yeah, it's. I, I feel the same way about an emotional affair. Like I think sometimes people talk about this as if you can like send away for a home testing kit and dip a relationship into it, wait five minutes. And if the strip turns purple, yeah, you're having an emotional affair. And if it's blue, you simply have a passionate friendship. Um, and, and again, the, the context is, I, I think primarily, how do you think about and talk about this other relationship in the context of your primary romantic relationship? And what does your partner think? Like that to me is what determines whether or not you two consider it one versus this is a close friendship or even this is grounds for talking about the possibility of polyamory. So, you know, you say your husband is like 
aware of your feelings and your history, and he feels pretty good about it. So to me, that does not, you know, that does not rise to the level of an emotional affair because an affair to me requires like actively hiding something from your partner, yeah, deceiving some form your of partner. Betrayal. Yeah. And so that question of like, should he be, yeah, not to sound glib, but like, should he? Like, you tell me, you know? Like, <laughs> That's exactly no, what it, I thought. I don't know. Should you're the you're the letter writer. Should he? Yeah. I mean, no, I don't think that inherently your husband could only really love you or only really prize your relationship if he experienced your love for James as threatening. That's not to say it might not be fraught or complicated. There's a world in between not threatened and, you know, happily polyamorous. So there's there's a number of like nuances that may be possible here. But no, if your husband knows how you feel and it doesn't threaten him, I do not believe that he ought to be threatened. If part of you thinks that because you sort of wish he were threatened, whether that be because you want a different kind of attention from him or simply because you are used to thinking that jealousy is one of the most reliable indicators that someone cares about you, that's, again, a question for you to answer. But you can maybe think like, oh, Am I asking that because part of me wishes he was jealous so that I could feel really cherished and prized by my husband? Or no, that actually doesn't feel true. I worry that he should feel jealous because I feel like I'm getting away with something. That will be interesting, clarifying work that you can do with yourself. And then, you know, maybe you just want to say to your husband something like, I didn't always expect that I would have this kind of a close friendship and this close of a marriage. I feel really good about it, but sometimes I wonder or worry that you should be angry with me or you might be angry with me and, and hiding it from me. You know, does that sound nuts? Like, you know, do you, do you ever think about things like that? Do you ever feel like there are certain scripts that you feel obligated to follow in a romantic relationship? Can you tell me a little bit about what you like about my friendship with James, for example? And your husband might very well say, you know, I love the things that he brings out in you. I love to see more of your capacity for love. Um, I love the time maybe that we all spend together. I, I don't know what his answers would be, but you, you can ask him these things. That is a fantastic script. You are just so good at scripts. I, you know, I, <laughs> thank you. I, I I don't ever imagine that somebody would repeat them word for word in part because they often sound incredibly formal when I say them as examples. But these, yeah, these are all things that you can can ask. And you don't have to rank people when you love them so much as just ask your partner and your friends what they want and need from right. you and what they expect right. from you. I think figuring out desires and then also understanding and trying to find the best way to communicate that is the key in this letter. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think that fine or overthinking are at odds here. I don't think that fine and polyamorous are at odds here. It could be a little bit of all of the above. Yeah, it sounds, it, it does not sound far-fetched to me to say, based on this letter, you are at least curious about the possibility of exploring more of your romantic and sexual connection with James as something that you discuss with your husband in the context of your marriage. It doesn't sound like you're saying, I've got to have that or I'm going to melt, but you sound curious about it. And so, you know, if, if part of what you just want is like, am I allowed to talk to my husband about it if I'm not sure? And if I haven't already decided I have a polyamorous identity, so I'm coming to you with an identity claim that you have to either respect or reject. I, I think sometimes that can feel a little maybe safer to someone, which is like, this is who I am. Therefore, either you accept me and you'll give me what I want or you won't and we'll break up as opposed to, 
sometimes I think about this. What do you think about it? It feels a little too open-ended or scary. Right. And who are we together in this? Yeah. And, And so you may find, as you talk about this with your husband, that he says, I feel absolutely great about things as they are, but the possibility of you having a conversation with James in more detail about this sounds tense or intimidating. I'm not ready for that. Or maybe, you know, I would be comfortable with that, but I wouldn't want our potential openness to include other people. I would just want it to include James, or maybe it would be, I think about that sometimes too. And by the way, I've got a friend I'd like to ask out. Like there may be all kinds of different possible responses that your husband will have to those questions. So, you know, be prepared to hear more about where he's coming from. Agreed. But I think you have reason to feel optimistic that this is not like a conversation that your husband would be like, distraught over you even raising. Like he seems, even if he's going to say, no, I don't want to have an open relationship along those lines. Like this here is my limit. I don't think he's going to say like, oh my God, I can't believe this. You must not love me at all. This must be just a step towards divorce. And I think he's going to be fine. Right. And it also seems, you know, like a positive thing that the letter writer has been open with their husband in the past about these experiences with James. And so it shouldn't, you know, maybe it will be surprising or maybe it won't. Yeah. Yeah. But I I guess my last thought here is just like, you know, you have this really lovely, beautiful description of your friendship with James. You don't say a lot about your husband here, but it sounds warm. I'm, I'm guessing you just didn't go into that in the interest of time rather than like my husband's kind of boring. Although, By the way, if you find that you really are nuts about James and your husband is just kind of fine, that that might be a sign that you actually do prefer James to your husband, in which case you might have a harder conversation in front of you. (laughs) Um, But assuming that things with you and your husband are not merely like, eh, whatever, but, but quite good, I think it's really wonderful and lovely and good that you have this intense, deep connection with one of your dearest friends. I don't think that's shameful. I don't think that means that you necessarily have a bad marriage. And I I just think, again, without saying more people ought to be polyamorous or more people ought to be in open relationships, I, I do believe that if more people could think of their own monogamous relationships and marriages as being consistent with deep and loving friendships that aren't simply, this person's great, but you always, always, always come so far ahead of them in my life that like I'll always rank them way below you. I I wish we could let go of that. Yeah. Ranking relationships is just, it's so hard. Or just this idea that you're always going to be able to maintain your non-marriage friendships in this totally different tier and category where like, oh, my priorities with that friend and with you would never, ever get into conflict. I would always, you know, prioritize my marriage on every level and in every way over my friendships. Like I do, I think it's good and important and right for people to have powerful friendships that, that change them. Yeah. And they're so enriching just to have different, you know, different orientations toward people too. And having different people in your life to kind of bring you, bring you what you might need and and what you can give to them too. On an entirely different topic, I know that you have recently been refurbishing a chair. Uh, I also know that you have described this chair as being haunted. (laughs) And yesterday I went to go see the latest Conjuring movie, The Devil Made Me Do It. So haunted furniture is very much on my mind. How is it going? What made you think this chair is haunted? What do you plan on doing about it? Oh my gosh. 
This is a great question. I love to talk about this chair. This chair has been in my life. I call this the haunted asshole chair is its official name in my head. Um, because, you know, it's been a part of my life for since about March of last year, maybe April of last year, right as the shutdown was really happening in the U.S. And I just needed a project and something to do with my hands while uh, there was just so much uncertainty in the world and I was avoiding finishing my book. And I came across this chair on Instagram. It's just, you know, a little squat wooden chair with armrests that are kind of carved wood and this beautiful caned back that's two panels. And I bought it, you know, online and went to go pick it up. And it was, of course, slightly more damaged than I had anticipated, but that was fine. I'm the type of person who says that I like a project. And as I was, you know, bringing this chair home and trying to figure out what to do with it, because it it looked a little rough, I discovered that it had this really distinct smell and it smelled like the former owner, just so much of, you know, their perfume. And in my head, I just have, you know, this is an elderly owner who, you know, the store probably bought this chair in an estate. And what I started trying to do was, you know, like sand the wood really gently, uh, try and refurbish this very slowly on my own over weeks. And still the smell persisted. It's, you know, it just like a gentle floral scent that's kind of just lingering in the DC humidity, which is, you know, it's just there. But then to make matters worse, I discovered that there was pet hair lodged into the cane. Oh. Dog hair. Yeah. Just like sort sewn of like, in, like when someone had made it. No, I mean, I don't think someone had intentionally done it, but as if this person who had owned the chair previously had just had a lot of pets and, you know, the hair just got stuck in there. And so I started trying to pull the hair. Oh my gosh, this is being so long-winded. You can really tell that I'm I'm like very excited for someone to ask me about the chair. But (laughs) there's all this pet hair stuck in the cane. So I just started pulling it out with like pliers, trying to see if I could get it out, you know, because I don't want this other pet hair in my in my house. And my two dogs are freaking out and kind of smelling this, this strange and, you know, ghost chair for some reason. And I have no idea why. Um, yeah, I was gonna say, I feel like now I have a pretty good sense of how the sh- chair, you know, was constructed. But what made you think that it was haunted? Was it simply like this, this smell is lingering beyond what I might expect if it were a merely natural smell or... The lingering smell, you know, the the pet hair. I mean, just the vibe around it. Not that, you know, anything has happened. And my relationship with ghosts is that perhaps they do exist. Perhaps they don't. Perhaps I can attach signs that happen or things that happen in my life to them. And I think they're a little bit funny and they actually really scare me deeply. Um, I don't know. We'll see uh, as life progresses and more signs happen. But this chair in particular, yeah, I mean, I don't really... You know, I don't know if it's haunted, but I like to just talk about it as if this previous owner's presence is informing what happens to it. But yeah, so I just kind of really, I started hacking that chair apart. I pulled the cane off. There is no more smell. It has a better feel to it. There's no more pet hair in there. The pet hair is somewhere, you know, in the garbage system of the D.C. area. And now it's just kind of on to me to rehab it. And so, I don't know, I've been actually thinking about what it means to have a process that's so physical and to be able to do something with my hands that I can sort of track over time. Because you know this, writing a book, it just is so time-consuming. And for a long time, it seems as though very little is happening. I don't know if you had that 
process with your multiple books that you've written. Yeah, I, I would say often when it comes to writing, you know, there will be longer periods of maybe conscious thought about a project, maybe not, um, followed by bursts of prolonged activity. Yeah. Um, not always, and it's not always at the last minute, but but definitely it, it feels very much like being submerged and then diving up above the water. Like they're very unlike one another. And it's interesting too. I feel fairly straightforward on the question of anything supernatural, which is I think when you are alive, you are alive. And I think when you are dead, you are dead. Although lots of things are nice and interesting to think about and, and don't bother me on that front. But I find that I do still really have this um, hard to shake sense that you become more dead as time goes on. So like when I think about ghosts, I can find myself sort of persuaded on at least an emotional level of like, yes, there could be something that was recently attached to this chair. But then I think of like a logical question, like, well, what about all the ghosts of like cave people from 30,000 years ago? And I'm just like, well, they still wouldn't be around, obviously. <laughs> like their time has expired. <laughs> if you died last week, you're freshly dead. And and so like you're, you're, you're going to be hanging around and, and longer than that, and you're just, no, death finally came. It really happened. I realize this is not in any way unique to me. Lots and lots and lots of people have had some version of this belief in the sense that yeah. um, various forms of like death vitality, I guess. It's funny because, you know, the, the ghost thing is really just kind of this tongue in cheek thing for me. But I think I was really drawn to this whole process of trying to rehab and sort of refurbish this chair and bring it sort of to its former state of, you know, having this beautiful cane where I'm trying to teach myself to do cane work, which is a really big pain in the ass. I don't know if, you know, listeners, you've ever YouTubed, I don't know why you would, what it means to cane a chair, but it's it's very tedious. But I think I was drawn to it because of this process of recreation. When I was, and I write about this in my book a little bit, but there's this theme of taxidermy in my book where when I was when I was young and my mom, before even she knew she was sick, had made a joke to me when I was little that um, when she passed, she wanted me to have her body taxidermied and put in my future adult apartment, which is, you know, not a great thing to say to a nine-year-old, even as a joke. It really kind of gets embedded into your head. She had a very macabre sense of humor. And so I would sort of just playfully imagine this vision of, you know, ghost mom stuffed somewhere just popping up throughout my life. And I, I write about that sort of in a hopefully playful manner. But um, also there was another experience I had in high school or college actually, where my dad tried to taxidermy some fish on his own. And fish is a really hard thing to taxidermy. I believe it. It's graphic. It's strange. You know, my dad and I have a complicated relationship. And so I think that this chair was a way for me to try and ask myself what it means to, one, lean into something that is so physical, and then two, to try to recreate something as a way of both process and empathy and, you know, learning how to, learning how to do some new skills too. And so, I don't know, it doesn't seem that far from trying to preserve something and trying to bring it back to its quote-unquote, you know, life. Yeah. This is a beautiful segue because you know, uh, conveniently, the name of your book is Seeing Ghosts. So I appreciate immensely that we're just able to seamlessly transition from talking about ghosts in chairs into the book itself, which um, is coming out next month, uh, August 24th. And I just wanted to know, how is that going? Oh my gosh, it's so surreal. You know, like I love this book with all my being. And 
it was so defining to get to spend so much time writing it. And I'm sure you had this experience too. And it's just this quiet time right now in the, in the last month and a half or so of lead up to it where I'm, I'm just waiting for it to really be out in the world in this real way. Of course, you know, early readers have copies of it. I'm sure people are posting on Goodreads about it both good and less good things, you know, as as is usual for that lovely website. But it's, yeah, this process is just both, it's been excruciating and exhilarating all at once because it's been a way for me to step into myself in a lot of ways with conviction, as myself as a writer with conviction, someone who can understand my own point of view and fascinations and obsessions, uh, and, you know, be a little bit more in touch with my spirit and and body. And I mean, I know in the past hour or so, we've made a bunch of jokes about, you know, like astrology and, and my belief in ghosts or lack of belief, but it's been a really grounding experience. Um, and it's it's really interesting to see what people will respond to. And I am completely sort of, you know, trying to get into a space where it's not my book anymore. It's everyone right. else's and they'll react to it as they will. And I've done my part. Yeah. Do you have any advice on that front? Yeah. I mean, it, mostly that it will happen whether you accept it or not. So it's really just a question of how much time and energy you would like to try to save yourself. Um, <laughs> so I, I think you're already on a very good track for that. Yeah, you know, it's 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 very strange, obviously, as as I think you already know, writing about loss and grief and other people um, is in many ways uh, sort of like drawing a line of here is where your experience ends and mine begins because here is how I have experienced your experience of something. And right. you and I may be at odds about that, but I'm writing it down. So, you know, good luck. How do you create that boundary for yourself or how did you sort of protect yourself in, in this Sense. You know, I mean, I, I do feel as, as though I, I bring it back to this every week. So I, I, I want to keep this part really brief, but I, I couldn't possibly separate the two. You know, when my book came out, I, I had to get in last ditch edits four months before the publication date because I became incredibly estranged from my entire family over something pretty, pretty, pretty brutal. And so, you know, the boundaries were really just there for me to simply observe. It wasn't, it wasn't a question of, oh, right. Christmas might be fraught this year. It was, you know, I will, you know, there, there, there will be no, there will be no anything. There's no boundary, right? There's no boundary there because there's no relationship there. Um, and so whatever boundaries I may need to commit to uh, on a personal level in terms of like not causing unnecessary harm or not giving into my own desire to overstep and and become controlling or or try to take on like a punitive role uh, as if I were able to to do such a thing, you know, that's for me to do on my own. It's it's not a question of working on a boundary with another party. So, in some ways, I think I got off really easy. Like, there's something incredibly convenient about publicly breaking ties with your entire family right before a memoir comes out. Like we'll never have to dispute our understandings of one another. We'll simply never ever share an understanding of one another that makes a, a legible relationship possible, which is interesting. I don't recommend it. I, I hope that you don't have to do that. So I, I, I think in some ways I'm actually very, very unqualified to consider that question. It's a question. I mean, the question of I've already gotten it frequently, which is, what does your family think about this? And, mm -hmm. you know, I, st I, I still, I have a relationship with my family and they were a big part of helping me write this book because I interviewed them so frequently, at least my, mm. my close family. 
And I find that question so hard to answer because to me, this book isn't, it's not my real life or it's not our real lives. I mean, yes, it is. And I wrote it down, but it's a version of it and it's a story and it's gone through so much editing to try and hopefully make it beautiful and, and good and, and, you know, funny and light in all the ways and challenging, but it's not, you know, it's not like my life continued outside of its pages. And so I find that really hard to explain to people. I'm I'm so curious. I, I remember from some of the sort of um, market copy that I've read for the book, it, it talks a lot about your early fixation with death and your worry constantly mm-hmm. um, about your parents, specifically your mother dying. I'm sort of curious because you're you're in a position to have sort of tested that out. Did you find after the fact that worrying about it and fixating on it had been in any way helpful? I realize that might sound a little mm. bit like a gotcha, like you're supposed to say like, no, the point is you should learn to appreciate every moment. But I'm genuinely curious, like, did you find yourself feeling a little bit more prepared when sort of disaster struck? Like, did you feel like, okay, I've I've kind of been training for this one? This is such a good question too. I mean, I guess the way I would answer that is in a way that worry about death was sort of what brought me to write this book. Um, and you know, the book is obviously, it starts with the death of my mom when I was young, but it really sort of turns to ask the question of like how, how I learned to experience loss in my family and who I learned from, which was my, my mom and my dad and the ways they experienced loss. And I use that word loss because I think this book is so much more about loss than grief, you know, loss of self or loss of a person or a place, um, you know, this kind of melancholy that isn't just attached to, you know, the death of a loved one. But, um, you know, as I was writing this book, I realized that a lot of the forward momentum that was just bringing me through these pages and and grounding a lot of the, the questions was wanting to understand, you know, my father, who I'd mentioned before, with a lot more depth, because though he is still alive, he is a person who has been a bit ghost-like in my life with you know, not much clarity around like his motivations and and why. And so I think this anxiety that I've had, you know, a lot of people have this when they're they reach adulthood is just understanding that the older the elders in their life might not be around anymore and trying to kind of prepare for this. That sort of propelled me. Um, and that was both surprising and not something i'd I'd thought about until I was really deep in it, yeah. It's just so interesting and complicated to think about something that you have experienced mentally or imaginatively a hundred thousand times finally occurring in reality and thinking both, oh, I've really put in the hours to get ready. And also this by definition could not have been exactly like any one of the scenarios I envisioned. And so there's also that strange sense of I trained for this, but in kind of the wrong way because you you can't know how exactly it will shake out. Right. And it's just something that you have to get through. And I think that's one of the most challenging and scary things is that it's it's going to be unique to a situation. And so, yeah, I mean, I've always worried about losing someone because I think mm-hmm. the question of like, how do I fill that space of what this person occupied in my life? I mean, well, actually, while I was writing this book, um, one of my uncles passed away and he was my mom's older brother and he just had such a window into her life. But through much of my childhood after she died, he and I didn't talk because, um, you know, for various reasons, he didn't get along with my father. And I'd sort of just decided that this was not a relationship I needed to engage with. But as I became older, I would try and 
reach out to him to hear these stories about my mother. And it was incredibly painful when he passed because one, of course, this person who I had loved throughout my childhood was no longer there just as we were starting to kind of reconnect. But then also this idea that with him, you know, these stories of my mother would also be gone. So like, there's just no amount of preparing (laughs) that can really help you and adjusting to that and living with it and having that, having that loss, allowing it to kind of transform with you and grow with you was something that I, I really started to understand the more I wrote this. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about. There are ways in which experiencing that loss has made some things feel a lot easier where it just feels like the ball dropped the thing that I was always on some level afraid would happen, which was that some version of my family will become inhospitable to me, um, happened. So what's there to worry about? And also there's ways in which I just feel incredibly like, you know, being resilient or experiencing life with resilience uh, becomes a lot more difficult because there's just that sense of, oh God, I'm I'm just depleted. So it can really vary from day to day and on, on question to question. So... Kat, I'm so grateful that you took some time uh, to answer these questions on the show today and to talk a little bit about your book. Um, do you plan on doing any appearances? Are you going to be talking anywhere? Oh, Are you going to be doing any readings? I'll be talking book? on. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. This has just been one. You know, it's really hard to give advice and to sort of have this very, very tiny sliver into other people's vulnerabilities, and so I appreciate you know, getting some time to do that and hopefully doing it with empathy. Um, And yeah, as for appearances, there will be appearances over Zoom, some, you know, in person here and there. And it's, it's just, uh, I'm glad to be able to celebrate this book in part, you know, whatever way it happens. Well, I'm very much looking forward uh, to getting to see it come out and, and be a part of the world. Thank you again so much for being here today. And I hope we get to see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up, to subscribe, or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Yeah, so, you know, again, leaving room for the possibility that you said something genuinely, like unnecessary or unhelpful or unkind or untrue. You have tried to apologize and your brother has not responded. So that answers the question of what do I do next on that front? You don't force an apology on someone who doesn't want to hear from you, even if you want to give it more than anything else in the world. So you don't try again. How can I support my brother if he's cut off all contact? Again, I don't know that you were supporting him before. 
I think you were allowing yourself to be hurt. And I think you were placating him. I'm not so sure that you were actually supporting him before. And I don't say that to make you feel bad about what's been happening previously, letter writer, so much as freeing you from this belief that what you were doing before was support. So now it's your job to go back to doing it. And that the problem was that one day you got angry enough because you'd gotten hit by a car that you finally let yourself say to your brother something that I'm guessing was a little bit closer to, you're a very cruel person, you treat me badly and I don't like you. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.